Into Matthew 6.10, where we will look this morning at one of the most explosive requests found in the entire Bible that, frankly, has ever been prayed. And many people pray this and don't really realize just the potential that is found in these few short words in Matthew chapter 6 and verse number uh, 10. I, I think about um, Rosario uh, Crutchfield who came to the Lord a number of years ago as a tenured professor at Syracuse as someone that was essentially atheist and had a number of other objections to the Christian faith. And she said that her conversion to Christ was not a sweet, pleasant acceptance of Jesus like many have experienced. It was more that coming to Christ took a wrecking ball to her entire life. And sometimes that's the case, because you have to understand, when you come to the Lord Jesus, uh, sometimes coming to Christ involves a collision of kingdoms. In fact, uh, one preacher said about this prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He said, this prayer, if we only knew, is asking God to conduct a major operation. It's more than simply walking across the street. It is, it is on par with some of the famous or infamous battles of the world in many ways. It's, it's pure, it's righteous, it's entire, entirely holy. Don't misunderstand me. But it is a conflict of kingdoms in many ways. And frankly, sometimes it's a conflict with the kingdom in our own hearts. It's precisely what it is. But Jesus taught here in Matthew 6.10 for us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this verse with a few others through the scripture are some of the best summaries of the Bible storyline from Genesis to Revelation. And let me remind you of that. God, the Father, loves His Son intensely and dearly and expects and intends for Him to reign. He is passionately, unreservedly, eternally committed to Christ having a kingdom of His own. And God does love us. He loves His Son more. He loves His honor. He loves His dignity. He exalts His Son without reservation. And so, He created the world as a kingdom for His Son. That's why this world is here. And then He dispatched co-rulers or vice-rulers, Adam and Eve, to extend that kingdom throughout the world. However, someone came along who tempted them to betray the king, and that was a rival ruler himself, Satan himself. They became traitors, and the human race with them. And ever since then, we've had within us a nature of rebellion, a desire, and a lust even to rule ourselves, to be autonomous and independent of God, and to do precisely what we want to do no matter what God thinks. And it's something that we battle nearly every day, if not every hour. We have that nature within us because our first parents fell into sin and, and we're traitors. Well, God being the God that He is, is a king, and with, as a king, He's got a court system. He's got laws. And because of our sins, He has sentenced us to death. And death is personal. Death is also eternal. There's the death of the body and the spirit. Then there is death and hell which is the only appropriate sentence for traitors. But God is also love. 
God loves the Son. God loves us. And so what He's attempted to do is bring us back to a point where we're no longer guilty. We're transformed within. We begin to grow in the likeness of Christ. We exalt Him and serve Him as King. But someone had to pay that price. And so He sent someone in a human body to pay that price. When He came, it happened to be His own Son, the one He expected to rule. And when He died upon that cross, He was suffering the execution that we deserve. He suffered our death penalty, and the Father was so pleased with that death penalty that He suffered. On the third day, He raised Him from the dead and gave Him a name which is above every name and seated Him at His right hand and since then has been working to make everything His footstool and place everything under His feet. A marvelous, powerful image. Now, to get this message throughout the world, because He loves the world, He's established embassies around the world. We call these churches. And he staffed them with a corps of diplomats and ambassadors, followers of Christ. And they enter into the camps and the realms of traitors and those who have betrayed the Lord and said, this king wants to establish peace and wants reconciliation. Here are his terms. Your kingdom and the kingdom of darkness has already been defeated, and now this king, from a position of victory and absolute sovereignty, is offering you reconciliation and peace repent and believe the gospel repudiate your kingdom well you're going to have to choke down the fact that you're part of another kingdom to begin with it's unpleasant like brussels sprouts it tastes awful but it's good for you you've got to accept that and you've got to humble yourself before this king because he says you're guilty and he says you're a traitor and he's got the best evaluation of you that you'll ever have now, don't despair. We've, we've all been in this position. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us like sheep have gone astray, the Scripture says. But He is now offering peace to the world through the communication and ministry of His diplomats in these embassies. But there is a shelf life or an expiration date to this offer. One day, He's going to withdraw these terms of peace and He's going to evacuate these embassies in the resurrection. And then all of the apocalyptic events that you read in Revelation, the best language to communicate this, by the way, are going to unfold and He is going to forcibly, vociferously, strongly, without a single hesitation, without a single interruption, impose His Son's kingdom upon the world and He shall reign forever and ever. And all the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ and it shall please His Father and honor Jesus just like He deserves. And so the Lord taught us to pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now I want you to notice the words here. There is your kingdom come. These are the boundaries of the kingdom. We're not talking about our kingdom coming. We're talking about His. This is a specific act that God does. We, we will not bring the kingdom by political or social action. We, we need to be responsible in those areas. Don't misunderstand me. But this is not something we impose upon the world. This is something that He does. And Baptists that we are, that is why we have always insisted upon religious liberty. Government must not coerce the kingdom for faith to be real. It must be chosen. It cannot be coerced by government, no matter what it is. So, now, I would say also, unbelief and restriction of the faith cannot be coerced by government either. 
But what we're saying here is, is that God has his own kingdom that he's going to bring. And so the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are spiritual. They are witness, they are worship, they are love, they are prayer, they are example. These are the things that we do. Your kingdom come. So these are the boundaries of the kingdom. Then there happens to be the essence of the kingdom. The kingdom is both territorial, which would encompass everything that is, but it's also internal and spiritual. When we talk then about kingdom, we're talking about the king's reign and rule. And anywhere Jesus Christ is Lord, there you find the kingdom of God. And to the extent that we submit to him, to that extent also do we have the kingdom. And so Jesus is interested in rule and reign. And so for that, there is the kingdom that is before us, talked about in the prophetic passages of Scripture. And let me assure you, if Jesus Christ came a first time, Jesus is coming a second time. The first time he came as a humble peasant, next time he will come as reigning, ruling, victorious Lord. And so there is the kingdom that is before us when he actually brings it as he describes in Revelation. So there's the kingdom before us. Then there's the kingdom near us. And that is, near us, we can extend the kingdom of God through evangelism and bring hearts to where they submit to the rule of Jesus Christ. Then there is, by implication, the kingdom against us. These are satanic and evil forces and those who follow that crowd, most of whom don't know it. So we've got to be marvelously and deliciously compassionate. Our enemy does not consist of breathing human beings, but spiritual forces. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and forces of darkness in high places, is what the Scripture says. We, we battle against that. And so this happens to be a kingdom against us, then the kingdom in us. Anywhere a heart has enthroned the Lord Jesus Christ, there we find the King precisely where He should be. Anytime we repent and place faith in Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection, namely His gospel, there Jesus Christ is King and Lord. This is the essence of the kingdom. So when it comes to the kingdom and the timing of it, it's here now. In fact, it was here a long time ago, the moment Jesus appeared. He said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. That was 2,000 years ago, and I would point out to you, he said it's at hand, not in the next county, not in the next village, at hand. Guess where it is today? We are closer to that great return of the Lord Jesus Christ today than when we first believed, than when he first ascended to his Father's right hand. And so there is, there is kingdom now, and there is more yet to come. Uh, well, there's the need of the kingdom. This assumes when we pray, bring your kingdom, Lord, in, in these ways, whatever's appropriate, whatever's needed, this assumes that it's not here now. Life on this earth, then, is a invisible often, sometimes imperceptible warfare between evil and good, between God and the kingdom of darkness. We need the kingdom because there is an opposing rival alternative kingdom and most of the time, when folks are a part of that, oftentimes they're not aware. Then there's the meaning of the kingdom. He said, your, king, your kingdom come. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is Hebrew parallelism here. Your kingdom come, and if you don't understand that, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So whenever we pray for the kingdom to come, we're actually asking God to do His will anywhere He wants. We're pleading with Him to do that. And and so there really is no difference between the kingdom coming and us doing the will of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then there's the vision of the kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done where? Are you serious? Did you just say on earth? When the kingdom finally comes, it will be very earthy. I do not believe that we will be ephemeral spirits disembodied from a physical body to float with robes and harps. Uh, The scripture doesn't teach that. There will be a resurrection body because the kingdom is material and physical and spiritual. That's true about heaven. That's true about hell. That's true about all the elements of the future kingdom. We're talking about real things. However, when it comes to the resurrection body and the kingdom that Christ rules, it will be perfect never to suffer corruption again. So the vision that Jesus has is of transforming everything into that which conforms to His will, and He is Lord, and He is capable of pulling it off. He can do it. That is His vision. And then here's the model of it all. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven then becomes the model for living. Let me ask you this. How do they handle the name of the Lord Jesus around the throne? I think we got a little insight into it as you were worshiping and exalting the Lord together. In other words, we live individually and corporately together in such a way that if anyone ever becomes curious of what the future kingdom in heaven will look like, they should be able to step in here and see it. I think about Lam and Santa, the uh, uh, professor of missions and world religions at uh, Yale who just recently retired. He grew up Muslim, and anytime he encountered someone that was a non-believer or a woman, he had to start calculating through many Muslim rules of interaction with women or with strangers or with men or with unbelievers. And it's a very burdensome approach to approaching people. And one day he met a Christian missionary who did not observe such rules. She abounded with love and embrace, and one day she violated or was unaware of all of his rules and social uh, rigidity that he had to observe in interaction with her, and she reached out and gripped him and embraced him and loved him and hugged him. He was startled. He was stunned. And he wrote, he later came to Christ, by the way, but he wrote, I was not accustomed to such unbounded goodwill. The goodwill that she had from Christ in her heart had no restraints. It was not bound by rigidity and human inventions. She loved and she let it go and flooded him with Christian love and it stirred him such to where he sought the Lord and came to Christ. Even to the point of becoming a missions professor at one of the oldest mission schools in the country, in the world. Unbounded goodwill. That's because what's taking place around that throne happens to be our model. And as far as our church is concerned, I'm not really into copying other churches. We might benefit somewhere along the line. 
I don't want to paint myself into a corner and never say never. But my primary concern in leading a congregation is not to copy what this church does or what this church does. I want to go to the throne and seek Him and say, what do you want me to do? What is your will? Well, this is the kingdom. And what Jesus is implying here is, is that your prayers can accelerate this kingdom when you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is intensely interested in answering this prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let let me spend the balance of the message applying this. How then do I pray this prayer? Well, let, let me mention a few things. One, pray for the kingdom before us or pray about Christ's return. Now, we're going to have the great opportunity come February 23rd to make a commitment to this kind of praying. I want to ask you on that day to start praying for 15 people who worry you spiritually and plead with God to move them to a point of surrender to Jesus Christ. And then that day, I want to ask you to begin praying for pastor, staff, and our families. We've got the largest bullseye on our back in, in the community, and we desperately need your prayers. Our ministry will do no better than your prayers for us. And then I want to ask you to commit yourself to a prayer meeting. Perhaps you're part of one already, but I, I expect uh, on that day to launch some intense efforts at establishing multiple prayer meetings in our church family. And then I, I need a couple of folks during worship services to pray every worship service and volunteer. Pray for the worship and pray for the invitation. And on that day, we're going to ask you to commit yourself to that. One way that we can do that is to begin to pray for the kingdom before us or pray about Christ's return. Uh, when Jesus says, your kingdom come, he's using a, uh, there's a phrase here, or the, the way the word is constructed is, let it come now at a point in time. Even if it means it jars the teeth out of our gums. Let it come. I think Jesus is thinking about His return. So we cannot hurry the return of Christ. That date is set. But we sure can prepare ourselves for that time. In fact, Jesus says, You also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. I imagine that someone who likes to set dates for the return of Christ possibly could set a date when Jesus is going to return. And I suggest He'd probably change it. Because we don't know when He's coming. So date setting is silly and foolish. Now, somebody might object to this kind of concept by saying, you know, you're really too heavenly minded to be doing any earthly good. You've got your eyes set on the heavens. What about the misery on earth? Why don't you develop a social conscience? And I've got to say to you, that that's a, that's a very good encouragement. But what I've got to say to you is this. In the grand scheme of things, and compared to eternity, life on this earth and the whole history of this earth is a dot. And eternity is a line that never stops and ends and ceases. I do not want to spend my life making earth a more comfortable place from which to go to hell. I do want to express Christian love and follow the example of Jesus, so I'm going to do it. But the second thing I want to tell you is something that C.S. Lewis observed in history. And he said, those Christians, or those people, excuse me, who've accomplished the most in this life were precisely those who thought most of the next life. 
And then he lists several examples. And he said, think only of this life and you'll get neither this life nor the next. Think of the next and you'll get that life with this one thrown in. And and I'm going to prove that in just a moment. In fact, it is irrefutable that Bible-believing Christians who are obsessed with the coming kingdom, with the return of the Lord Jesus, all the glories and bliss of heaven, actually do more social ministry than their critics. And it's very easy to understand why. We have people that die amongst us. We have people who defect. They depart for one reason or another. And we're constantly winning people to Christ and bringing them in. And so they bring in the human resources necessary to fund and to execute these kinds of ministries. Whereas if you do not win souls to Christ and have that spiritual transaction, you die and you decline. And so you run out of resources to serve the needs of people. If we want to impact society, we need to keep our eyes on eternity. A healthy society depends upon a people who are obsessed with eternity. But we pray then for the kingdom before us. We pray about the return of Christ that we and those around us will be ready. But then we pray for the kingdom near us. In other words, we pray about evangelism. We pray that we will be effective at sharing the gospel and inviting people to the Lord. In fact, when Jesus preached the kingdom, that's what he said in Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom expands every time someone comes to Jesus Christ. Repents and places faith in Him. So we we pray about our own evangelism. Now, I can still hear someone still objecting and saying, you're still too heavenly minded for any earthly good. This past edition of Christianity Today reported on some research by Robert Woodbury. And I've put the title of the article and the edition of Christianity Today there that is really stunning and marvelous. And what he found was the the following on the next slide. He found that non-Western nations that experienced the greatest advances in the 19th century in health, education, freedom, and democracy in the 19th and 20th centuries, were those nations reached by Christian missionaries. In fact, you take the healthiest nations, the most educated nations outside the West, and those that had the most democracy, the most freedom in their government system, you can research those and find an abundance of missionary stations, missionary compounds, and missionary work. Where it's lower, they don't have very many at all, and they did not. Now, these nations did not benefit from just any missionaries, but Protestant missionaries, and not just any Protestant missionaries, but those who sought the conversion of souls to Christ. These Protestant missionaries did not emphasize just any ministry and theology. They emphasized evangelism and what Robert Woodbury calls conversionary doctrines. And they did not aim for social improvement. That was not their intention. They aimed at conversion through evangelism and social improvements resulted as a consequence to the conversion of those they brought to Christ. They'd bring them to Jesus and they could not help but to become like Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, the greatest thing we can do for our world and our nation is share the gospel of Christ and invite men, women, boys and girls to come to Jesus. When they do, Christ comes in their life. He begins to transform them and make them like Himself. In fact, 
they find that they have been predestined to become conformed to the image of God's Son and walking with Him. And God works all things together for that good to make them like Jesus is what happens. And so they just can't help but to become like Jesus Christ. You say, well, I know a lot of people claiming to be Christians that don't look a thing like Jesus. I know. I know. But let me ask you. Let's just imagine that I'm the devil. By the way, I'm not. But let's just imagine <laughs> that, that I'm the devil. Do you know what I would do to, to discourage you from becoming a follower of Christ? In very wicked and vicious fashion, I would load your life up with hypocrites who claim to be Christians. That's what I would do. In fact, in a strange way, that is actually a big compliment to the Christian faith. What do counterfeiters counterfeit most often? Bubblegum wrappers? Or $20 bills? They counterfeit $20 bills more than any other bill that's in currency today. Well, why don't they counterfeit bubblegum wrappers? They aren't worth anything. You counterfeit that which is valuable and worthy. So why are there so many counterfeit Christians? Well, I think we've just answered that. If I was going to discourage you from following Jesus, I would load your family, I would load your workplace, I would load your neighborhood, I would load your relationships, I would load your television, radio, discussion groups, and intellectual background with hypocrites to keep you from Jesus Christ. I, I really, I'm sorry that that's happened to you, but that's not been my experience. And you've got to understand as a pastor, I'm, I'm up to my neck with these Christians. And that's okay, that's okay. That's <laughs> okay. And frankly, most of the people that are labeled hypocrites are just people that are struggling. Well, we pray for the kingdom that is near us. Then we pray about the kingdom that's against us. We pray about Satan's activity. One missionary was speaking to a um, group of men that uh, prayed for him and supported him. And he told the story of how he left his village to go into the main city in a nation in Africa to pick up medical supplies. It required him to carry quite a bit of money. He did not have a vehicle, so he rode a bike. And the trip was long, so he spent the night halfway there and on the return trip would spend the night a few miles outside the city and make the rest of the trip home uh, the next day. Well, while in the city one day, he saw two men fighting and he treated one of them, took care of him, and shared the gospel with him. He returned home. He came back about a month later and ran into this man that he had treated. And the man said, I appreciate you sharing about Christ with me. And I've got to admit something to you. My five friends and I have been watching you for several months. And we know that you come into the city with money and you pick up medical supplies. You keep doing the same thing over and over again and staying in the same place. And the day that you treated me, we had planned on coming to your camp and killing you and taking your money and then selling your medical supplies. And the missionary said, well, well why didn't you? He said, we arrived and there were 26 armed guards around you. 
He said, no, I was traveling alone. Well, it was on this date. He said, yeah, that's the date. He said, there were 26 big, burly, armed guards standing around you. We weren't about to mess with you. Five couldn't take on 26, especially those. Well, as the missionary is sharing this with this men's group, he's interrupted by one of the men. He said, what date was that? And he gave him the date. And he said, you know, when you were there about to go to sleep, it was afternoon here, and I was about to start a round of golf. And I had pulled my clubs out and put them on the cart, and I just had this overwhelming impression to pray for you. And so I put my clubs back, and I called men in this Sunday school class to pray for you. Would those men please stand up? And when they did, there were 26 men who stood up. God is very serious about opposing evil. Now, He's profoundly patient. Somebody may ask, well, why does God let evil reign in the world today? Well, let's imagine God wiped out evil at 11 o'clock tonight. Where would you and I be at midnight? It's a choice God makes. He'd have to wipe us out and put many of us into perdition, and God is patient, patiently seeking to win others to His Son, through the ministry of His church. This is what we pray about. In fact, our prayers reflect the spirit of Matthew 4.10 where Jesus said, Away with you, Satan. So when we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying for a collision of kingdoms. In fact, one author said, To pray this is to pray that every consequence, every last vestige of Satan's usurping of God's reign and rule will be totally wiped out. Every trace of Satan's impact on this world will be completely eliminated. Now, I want to discourage you then from attacking and assaulting Satan verbally in your prayers. That doesn't happen in the Scriptures. You can simply put on the armor of God daily in prayer and ask God, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that's sufficient. Then we pray in the fourth place for the kingdom in us. We pray for Christian submission our own submission to the Lord. Something you're probably going to have to battle every day of your life, perhaps every hour. And I will say to you, if you find yourself drifting from the Lord's rule in your life, that doesn't mean you're a lousy Christian. It means you're still breathing. Our salvation was final when we accepted Jesus, but it was not complete. We're still being saved. Every day, observe the discipline of surrendering to the Lord. Pray like Jesus did in Matthew 26, 39. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so one author said, Christians are those who have accepted the fact that they can never do what they want to again. At least where it crosses with the purposes and commands of God. Instead, they must forever after do what God likes. And so as we move through Christian growth, we move away from me to he, if I can put it that way. From self-rule and self-determination and autonomy from God to complete vociferous surrender. I said something Wednesday night. By the way, you know we have Wednesday night services. Just check it. Um. Wednesday night, I said something that I think bears repeating here. And that is, 
Harry Stack Sullivan said, it is easier to act your way into a new way of feeling than to feel your way into a new way of acting. I'd like to change from the inside out. I would really like to just make a decision and change. And I've been able to do that at times. But I have to be honest with you, my innards are mischievous and bratty and spoiled and rebellious oftentimes. Do you find that to be the case? It's hard for me to get a handle on what's inside of my heart and my soul. Some of the things that appeal to me, some of the things that worry me, some of the things that cause me fear, some of the things that I'm displeased with, it's hard to get a hold on those things. So if you can change from the inside out, please do. But oftentimes we're left with changing from the outside in. Now some of you have demonstrated that this morning. Some of you were tempted not to come today. You didn't want to come. Your feelings were mischievous and rather immature this morning. You didn't want to come, but you did, and now you're glad you came. How many times has that happened to us? Well, it probably happens maybe several times a week at one point or another. So what we're saying here is is that We are to be action-driven people, not merely feeling-oriented people, or we are not going to accomplish much for God or anyone else. There is great power and value in just simply doing the right thing no matter how we feel. So submit. Well, I don't feel like it. Well, what what if you did feel like submitting? What would that look like? There are several ways to submit. Submit forcefully. Be intense about it. Be the master of your feelings and your emotions and your innards, if I can put it that way. Jesus, in fact, said something that some have stumbled over, but in Matthew eleven twelve, 12, He said that many take the kingdom of God forcefully or violently. They get violent with their own resistance and put it down as if in a warfare with themselves and grab hold of the Lordship of Christ. Do it forcefully. One Puritan prayed, Lord, what thou wilt, where thou wilt, and when thou wilt. Well, what if you did feel like surrendering forcefully? What would you do? Then surrender gracefully. When you do this, you're praying to our Father. Now, isn't it cool to have a father that's a king? I was always proud of my dad because he handled nuclear weapons and his nickname was Gunner. That's rather appropriate for a fellow that gets four rifle magazines a month and handles nukes and has fired cannons. I thought that was cool. That was a thrilling thing as a kid. And I would brag on that. Beloved, as much as I love my dad and admire him, I've got a father who is a king on a throne that will never suffer a coup or rival. And he is saying, come to me. Surrender gracefully. Then submit totally, on earth as it is in heaven. What degree of surrender do those in heaven experience right now? Do you think there's any rebellion there? 
We surrender everything. One author said, In heaven, God's will is done instantly, not later. Enthusiastically, not half-heartedly. Completely, not partially. Perfectly, not as we often do it. Deal Moody was the Billy Graham of the uh, 1800s, the last half century of the uh, 19th century. He shook America and England and the UK for, for Christ powerfully. He was listening to a man preach in Ireland. And the man said, this generation has yet to see what God can do for and through and with a man completely and totally submitted to him. And that struck D.L. Moody's heart and he prayed, dear God, I will be that man. I will be that man. I will be that Christian. I surrender all. Because when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as as it is in heaven, we're really praying that for ourselves as well as the world. Now to get in on this, you've got to admit to begin with, And it's sad, it's not elegant, it's not pleasant. But you've got to admit, I am part of another kingdom because God says I am. Others may fawn over you and pet you and give you considerations that God never would. Still, the Bible says we are part of the kingdom of darkness without the Lord Jesus and surrender to Him. 1 John 5, 19, in fact, says the whole world lies under the sway of the devil. You've got to admit that. And, and look, don't despair too badly because you're surrounded by the rest of us who've had to do the same thing. Or in the words of Paul, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's a sentence for that. The king has a court system and sentences. He sentenced us to death. The wages of sin is death. And this kingdom, that's how he pulls us off. But Jesus Christ bled in our place. And the Father was pleased with him and raised him from the dead. And so Jesus came preaching, the time is fulfilled. In other words, it's now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repudiate and reject that kingdom. Despise it. Reject it. Say no to it. Make a decision in the heart to say, I am turning away from that. And I'm going to embrace exactly what the Lord said should be priority. I'm going to give myself to the Lord Jesus Christ today just like His Father has given Himself to His Son. And then Jesus said, If you confess Me before men, I'll confess you before My Father who's in heaven. You deny Me before men, I'll deny you before My Father who's in heaven. Everyone in the kingdom has been knighted. Everyone that belongs to the Lord Jesus has publicly identified Himself. That doesn't save us, but it is a marvelous test of the sincerity of our faith. In other words, make sure you understand, if you're going to be a coward with the Lord Jesus Christ, stay where you are today. If you're going to do it simply to please someone else, stay where you are. We have too much of that already. What He wants you to do is with truth in your heart and sincerity to bow it all before Jesus Christ with a faith that is willing to go public for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because we're proud of Him. I've done that with my father's name. My wife does that with the Tennessee Volunteers too much. 
Um, and this is, what, this is what we do with the Lord Jesus Christ. We go public for Him. And so what God is calling you to do is to give yourself in faith to Jesus Christ with a saving faith that is willing to go public for Him. To have that kind of heart. And we're going to pray for you then that the kingdom will come upon you today. Father, we pray for that. Because you are worthy. And dear God, I want to say, together with my friends here, we thank you that you intend for Jesus Christ to rule. We are so thrilled that Jesus gets a throne, that He gets a kingdom, and everything bowed and placed underneath His feet. And we want to see today a preview of that in someone's life. Would you help friends to surrender and say yes to Him and bow everything to Him and become sincere, truthful, public followers of Jesus Christ? Please do not let the other kingdom stand in the way. Please... Do the necessary efforts from heaven, from the throne, to keep all distractions and all opposition from souls today as they do serious business with you. Now, as you keep talking to the Lord, let me tell you what we're going to do. This is the most important part of our service, where you do serious business with God. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And we're going to urge you during that time to turn yourself to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. Repudiate your life before now and surrender to Christ and trust His cross and resurrection alone to cancel God's debt against you. What we're going to do is that we'll stand and we'll sing and we're going to ask you to step out from where you are and meet one of our staff members here in the front. And all you need to say simply is, I want Jesus as my King. And we'll help you with the rest. There's no magic in walking down this aisle. We're just simply giving real practical help at this time to serve you. But right now, would you quietly stand with me? I'm going to finish my prayer after you stand, and we're going to ask you to come. Blessed God, would you please see to it that your son gets everything he desires and deserves in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everyone needs compassion, a love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior.
You may be seated. Dr. Mills mentioned our Wednesday nights. About half of you are, are coming back and, and being a part of that Wednesday night service. And so uh, that's some place that you're going to want to be. Uh, we had uh, just, again, about half the room, half of this room, joining us on Wednesday nights. And uh, we're excited for you to be there. Our, our supper begins at uh, 5 o'clock, and the service begins in Building D at 6 o'clock. Uh, Sunday nights, we have our preschool, children's, and youth activities. You can find all those listed here in the bulletin that you have with us. Also want to let you know that our upper basketball, we've been talking about it and asking you to pray about it. This week, our coaches will be trained and prepped and presenting the gospel, and then that gospel presentation will occur next week. And so as you're, as you're thinking and you're interceding in your quiet times praying for this ministry, uh, be thinking about that gospel presentation as it is prepared and then delivered next week. Ushers, if you'll come forward uh, and prepare for our offertory, there's, there's a story here listed in your bulletin about legacy, about how as we give to the cooperative program every week, we're supporting international missions. And, and particularly, as we've been emphasizing the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, international missions, how someone in South America received the gospel and became a Christian through our Southern Baptist missionaries and is now serving in India as a missionary himself. And so it, it just goes and it goes and goes. Thank you. Thank you for giving. Uh, our last count is that we're $36 short of our $25,000 Lottie Moon Mission Offer a Goal. I hope that 15 of you will decide that you want to make up that $36 difference and we'll, we'll shoot past that $25,000. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to give, to, to be involved in something bigger than ourselves, bigger than this church, uh, and then to join into your, uh, really the, the manifestation of your kingdom coming, your will and be done on earth as it is in heaven, seeing that their gospel message is spread throughout the world. Thank you for that privilege that we can do that just even now. Father, we remind, we're mindful of the fact that every penny that we have, every penny belongs to you. And we're glad to give 10% of it back or whatever more you ask of it. Father, we pray that you'd bless us as we give and we pray that you'd bless the gift and use it for your kingdom's glory. 